Please join me this morning in reading God's word. The scripture passage is found in Luke chapter 8, verses 40 through 56. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him because they were all waiting for him. Then a man named Jairus, who was a leader of the synagogue, came up. Falling at Jesus' feet, he pleaded with him to come to his house because he had an only daughter, about 12 years old, and she was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds pressed around him. Now a woman was there who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years, but could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind Jesus and touched the edge of his cloak. And at once, the bleeding stopped. Then Jesus asked, Who was it who touched me? When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds are surrounding you and pressing against you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I know that power has gone out from me. When the woman saw that she could not escape notice, she came trembling and fell down before him. In the presence of all the people, she explained why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. Then he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the synagogue leader's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher any longer. But when Jesus heard this, he told him, Do not be afraid. Just believe, and she will be healed. Now when he came to the house, Jesus did not let anyone go in with him, except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Now they were all wailing and mourning for her, but he said, Stop your weeping. She is not dead, but asleep. And they began making fun of him, because they knew she was dead. But when Jesus gently took her by the hand and said, Child, get up. Her spirit returned, and she got up immediately. Then he told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them to tell no one what had happened. This has been the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we pause in the midst of a hectic week. For some in this room, there's huge burdens they bear, whether that's illness in the family, wayward children, job situation, matters at school, whatever the case may be, Lord, help us to put some blinders on and focus on the text this morning. Thank you for your word that is alive. It promises not to come back void. And so, Father, we ask as we go to the text that you would give us ears that can hear. And with that comes obedience. And so we pray that as well as we glean the truths of your word. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you would, turn, if you're not already there, to John chapter 8. Uh, if you are new with us, we are journeying through the Gospel of Luke, and uh, we're excited as we move through ever so slowly, but uh, methodically, which is good, all right? 
Let me set the scene for you as well because in Luke chapter 8, we, we, we've sprung out of this, the, some teachings that Jesus had given, the parable of the sower, for instance. And what Jesus was saying is, how do you respond to me? And then the latter part of 8, we saw two miracles last week, the calming of the storm and the casting out of the demons. We're going to see two more today. And these four miracles are going to answer, who is this Jesus? And how do we respond based upon the parable that we heard? Next week, we're going to see what that leads is Peter's confession saying to Jesus, you are the Christ. It's just a beautiful segue. But in the meantime, we're, we're looking at these two miracles. We've looked at Jesus' power over the storm, over nature. We've seen it over the supernatural, the demons. Now we will see it over illness and we'll see it over death. So let's go to the text and let's look at verse 40. It says, when Jesus returned. So we, we were at the Gerizim. We were on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. Now we've moved back to the north quadrant, which is Capernaum. This was Jesus' hometown. He had performed a lot of miracles in this uh, vicinity. We'll talk about that briefly here in a moment. But we find this man named Jairus. And he's not just any man. The text tells us he's a ruler in the synagogue. This is a, a who's who in the community. It's not Nate. Hello, Nate. Good to see you. Yes. <clears throat> Appreciate all that Nate and his team has done. They have spent hours this week uh, trying to get past the firewall of the school to making sure our sound works. It, it was all legit with the firewall. But uh, just thank him. And I want to thank Tilly. Hyatt and uh, Lori Evans for the nursery. We, we're launching that. Yes, isn't that exciting? So uh, if ages four months to approximately five years of age, that's available to you. For those a little bit older, we have notebooks for you to follow along with the sermon, which is great. So if you didn't get that, check the welcome desk. Well, back to the text. That wasn't Jairus, that was Nate. But Jairus comes, and he, the term in the Greek tells us he's not only just one of the teachers at the synagogue, he is in charge. He's responsible for the worship services. He's responsible for what, who's reading the text and when. Uh, again, it's someone highly esteemed in Capernaum in this small fishing village. And what does he do? Look what the text tells us in verse 41. It's shocking. He falls at Jesus' feet. You would not expect that from the social elite. Remember the centurion? He sent his servant to talk to Jesus. But here's Jairus falling at the feet. He doesn't care. He's desperate. Because the text tells us, right, his daughter is very sick. Jairus' name means, by the way, he will awaken. Verse, later on in verse 52, that's exactly what's going to happen to his daughter. But forging across all the social, social norms, Jairus meets Jesus, falls at his feet. And why would he come to Jesus? Well, think about the synagogue in Capernaum. We've already seen in chapter 4. In chapter 4, there was an exorcism uh, performed in the synagogue. That was the worship leader. Uh, th there was a man with a withered hand that was, his hand was restored in the synagogue. And the centurion, we talked about him when we studied that text. The centurion is the one who donated the monies to build the synagogue. So Jairus is very familiar 
with this Jesus and what he's capable of doing. And he tells Jesus, notice the text, he says, I, I, I have a daughter. This, this is daddy's little girl. In fact, the text tells us it's his only daughter. Reminds us of the widow of Nain. Remember her? She only had one son. And the text tells us she's almost 12. In that culture, that means she's ready to be married. 11, 12 years of age. Mary, when uh, she's pregnant with Jesus, that's about the age she would have been. 11, 12, possibly 13. Her whole future lies before her. <laughs> Daddy's little girl, he's expecting to walk her down the aisle. I mean, Mazel Tov, this is fabulous. And now this... This isn't what he scripted. And the text tells you, not just ill, the text tells us in verse 42, she's about to die. And you get to the next clause and it's great. Because the text, next clause says in, in verse 42b, it says, and Jesus was on his way. The sigh of relief that Jairus has, this Jesus is going to come. He, he's going to heal my baby. This is what I've imagined the sigh of relief that, that comes. And yet, <laughs> you, you have two roadblocks that immediately occur. First, it's the crowd, which we'll get to in a minute. And then this unclean woman. It, it's kind of like watching a video on YouTube and your internet goes out. And it, it stops. Everything just freezes, right? I was going to use a record, but kids don't know what a record is or a CD anymore. So YouTube, how's that? The first problem this man, I mean, can you imagine? Here's Jesus, he's willing to come, and the first thing you have is a crowd that's pressing in. The term for pressing is the same term used of the weeds that choked out the good plant. They're, they're, I mean, this is a claustrophobic nightmare, right? That you, you have all these people and, and, and they're hindering Jesus from coming. And verse 43, worse yet, you got a woman who's, who's innervated the, the, the equation and she comes. This is a second problem. Notice this woman who has been suffering with hemorrhaging. She's, she's had a bleeding issue, the text tells us, for 12 years. Now, there's several things to note. If you, you're jotting anything down on those notes, there are several things that we want to see here. First of all, she's suffering physically, isn't she? An infirmity for 12 years. The Gospel of Mark tells us that it's only grown from worse to worse. This, this bleeding has, has, has increased. The text tells us that no one could heal her. Uh, I, I love that Dr. Luke omitted this point, but Mark highlights it, that she's seen every doctor and they can't help her. <laughs> uh, good, good oversight, uh, Dr. Luke. But physically, she, she's suffering. There's no doubt there, right? That's very obvious. She at least has enough strength to go into the crowd and, and, and meet Jesus. But there's, a, there's several other components that you don't want to miss. Socially, she's also suffering. In a Jewish culture, she is unclean. The Jewish codified law, the Mishnah, has a whole section on women purification and how it relates to bleeding. She's unclean. Everything she touches is unclean. Bed, chairs, clothing, uh, bedding, bedding, all of this has to be washed, cleaned. 
she is forbidden if she's married to have a relationship with her husband. As well, because she's unclean in anything she touches, she cannot go to the bar mitzvahs, she cannot go to the, the tea parties. She, she has to avoid all contact with society. It's like a COVID quarantine gone bad, right? 12 years. No contact with people. In fact, the text doesn't even mention she has family. You, you wonder if they've all left her. So she struggles physically, she struggles socially, she's, she's got to struggle emotionally. A constant embarrassment. Why do you think she, she went behind Jesus and didn't approach him head on? The turmoil, the pain, the loneliness. And again, unable to attend. And in that culture, illness was linked with sin. So then she's plagued with that idea. What have I done wrong before God? There's also economic problems. One scholar mentions that in a system that applauds purity, impurity, those who are unclean are unable to maintain their own individual economic stability. Think about it. She's forbidden to go work. Anything she touches is unclean. And, and the text tells us in Mark's gospel, she has spent every dime she has to try to get well. They went all to the doctors. She has nothing left. And then there's the spiritual pain and agony. Not only is she labeled most likely a sinner. Remember the man that was born blind? What did the crowd ask? What did the disciples ask? What did the religious rulers assume? Who sinned? This guy or his parents? Here's a woman with hemorrhaging of blood for 12 years. Oh, just, what a sinner. She deserves what she gets. You can hear it. And, and she's, she's not allowed to participate in the festivities. She cannot go as a pilgrim to the temple. I have a feeling she's questioned the Lord's goodness over those last 12 years. <laughs> Where are you, God? Why haven't you healed me? What have I done wrong? Twelve years. Twelve years of suffering and discomfort. Twelve years of isolation and loneliness. Twelve years of mental anguish and internal turmoil. Twelve years of bankruptcy and hopelessness. Perhaps this morning you can relate a little bit to this unclean woman. The desperation that comes is the same as Jairus. Notice what the text tells us. She comes, verse 44, behind Jesus and touches the edge of his outer cloak and at once, immediately, the bleeding stopped. She takes a great risk, doesn't she? Remember, there's, there's a ton of people that have flocked around. The crowd is huge. If anyone finds out that she's touched them, they're going to be livid because seven days you were unclean. The, the, the ramifications are huge. And touch is highlighted four times in this passage. <laughs> she takes enormous risks, but she understands there is only one possible 
solution to my problem. I've tried everything else. I've seen every doctor. I've spent every dime. I've tried every home remedy. I've searched the net for anything I could possibly find. There's nothing left. And that guy is the only one that possibly could heal me. I reminded the old Bill and Gloria Gaither song, He Touched Me. Remember that? The, the lyrics are shackled by a heavy burden neath a load of guilt and shame. Then the hand of Jesus touched me and now I'm no longer the same. He touched me. Oh, he touched me. Oh, the joy that floods my soul. Something happened and now I know. Years of pain, years of isolation and embarrassment vanish with the touch of Jesus' garment. Jesus states in verse 45, who is it that has touched me? Jesus knows who touched him. In fact, you, you can even see that later in verse 47 because she said she could not escape notice. It, it's like when you broke something as a kid and your mom said, who broke this? And you know you're toast. You can see it in the eye, you know from the tone, mama knows that you broke that vase and she just wants you to confess, right? This is the idea with Jesus. Who's touched me? He knows who's touched. This is giving the opportunity for a wo this woman to come clean, no pun intended, right? To confess, to recognize. And I, I love Peter's response. He's the realist. Uh, he's got the foot in the mouth and here he is again. He says, you gotta be kidding. <laughs> Oh, with all these people, you want to know who touched you? I mean, really? There's a zillion people here crammed in this small area. And you're asking this? Jesus knows. Why? This isn't magic. Jesus wasn't some rabbit foot that if the woman could just touch it or rub the, the, the oil lamp, the genie would appear. No, 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 no. Notice what the text tells us. She touched me, Jesus says, for I know that power has gone out from me. Power in the life of Jesus. Well, this is what one commentator states, Daryl Bach. He said, power is at the heart of what Jesus possesses in his relationship to the Father. Jesus is the bearer and bestower of God's power. And in other words, in full compassion, Jesus willingly healed her. He knew who was behind her, him. He knew who was about to touch him. In fact, I think that's why he moved through the crowd. It was to give her an opportunity to understand what it means to be restored through the power of the Lord. It's Jesus who acted. Ultimately. And notice, Jairus is at Jesus' feet. Notice where she is. So what does the woman do? Verse 47, she could not escape. Notice she came trembling. She is scared spitless, and it says, and she falls down before him. Why is she scared? Well, first of all, she just made a teacher unclean. That's a big to-do. In this culture, where purity is so significant, she's already an outcast. This is over-the-top lady idea, plus anyone else she touches. But I think there's also another component to it. She's been living in shame for so long. I have a feeling she's probably fearful of engaging anyone. I mean, she's been in isolation for 12, months, 12 years. And so she answers the question, who? I did it. She answers the question why, 
Notice she says, she could not escape. She explained why she had touched him. And then she answers the question, how? And how she had been immediately healed. That term immediately has occurred again in the text. Watch that. You'll see it several times in this passage. And so this woman defies all odds and hopes and believes that this one would heal her. And Jesus says to her, and I love this next line, daughter, which is a very unusual way. This woman most likely was much older than Jesus. But you, this child of the Lord, he says, daughter, your faith has made you well. The healing occurs because she has faith, not because she had enough faith. Keep that in mind. What is faith? It's confidence. It's trust in something that is true. Faith must have content. To have faith in Christ in order to be saved means to have confidence that he can remove the guilt of your sin and grant eternal life. She has faith. Faith does not appear in the realm of the possible. This is George Mueller, a quote from one who had started and oversaw the orphanage in Bristol, England in the 1800s who has written much on prayer. He says, faith does not operate in the realm of the possible. There is no glory for God in that which is humanly possible. Faith begins where man's power ends. <laughs> Jesus' knowledge then is like the knowledge of God who knows the children's requests before they express them. And the dynamics of the woman's approach to Jesus are like those who accompany a person's approach to God. And so he says, Jesus says to you, your faith has made you well. Literally, in the Greek, it is, you are saved. You have been restored. You have been an outcast from society, an outcast from the Lord, because you've not been able to go to the temple. You have been made he, you've been healed. And what does Jesus say to her? <laughs> Something she hasn't heard for over 12 years. Go in peace. <laughs> peace. This is the gospel, isn't it? The good news of peace through Jesus Christ is what Peter said to the, uh, the centurion Cornelius in chapter 10 of Acts. Twelve years of absolute turmoil for this lady has ended. But far more significant than her physical being restored, it's that she has a right relationship with God. Wow. <laughs> what a detour. Here's Jesus making his way to Jairus' house, and in the process, he restores a woman who has been unclean for 12 years. Well, now we go to the 12-year-old daughter. And the text in verse 49 says, While he was still speaking, someone from the synagogue ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. <laughs> the delay. Can you imagine, Jairus? I mean, it's like, let's go, let's go. She's very ill. Move out. Get out of the way, this crowd. And then this whole interaction with the woman, he just, he's just sweating bullets. Let's, let's go. My daughter is very sick. I mean, this lady's been, she's been ill for 12 years. What's another hour? My daughter is dying. God's timing is not our timing. <laughs> Operating on God's timetable results 
listen, in complete dependence on him. Doesn't it? Submitting to his will and the glorious opportunity to see him work. This is God's timetable. Well, last week we talked about this with the storms of life. God's timetable was Community Bible Fellowship to be birthed in the midst of a pandemic. Who does that? <laughs> I've had Christian leaders call me and say, uh, uh, you're crazy. I said, no, it's the Lord. How do you explain this? How do you explain 13 people being baptized last night? Yeah, this is the Lord, what God is doing here. And it's exciting to be a part of it. And God's timing, again, is not always our timing. And we so forget that, don't we? Jairus is so concerned that his, his daughter might die. That's what Jesus wants. It's like the man who was born blind. And, and they asked, you know, we, we said, who, who sinned? And Jesus said, no one has sinned. He's born blind so that God might be glorified. Wow. And so... Jesus heard this. He said, oh, don't be afraid. <laughs> I love it. Just believe and she will be healed. It's just what he said to the disciples. We're going to the other side. In the midst of the storm, they, they freak out. He says, I told you we're going to the other side. She's fine. We'll take care of this. No worries. I love it. And so Jesus told these disciples, we're, we're, we're going to move forward. Oswald Chambers states, faith never knows where it is being led, but it loves and knows the one who is doing the leading. Hmm. Often in scripture, we're called to trust in God's person and power when things go wrong. Psalm 22, 4 says, in you, O God, our ancestors trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. The delay is uh, in maneuvering through the crowd. The delay because of this uh, miracle that had to occur with the unclean woman was to help strengthen, I would argue, Jairus' faith and trust in this one who calms storms, Jesus. Well, the audience is restricted. Jesus limits this to the household and to Peter, John, and James, the three amigos. They are privy to certain events as they serve as leaders. And Jesus tells us that she is just asleep. They are crying and weeping in verse 52. And he, he says she, she's just asleep, which is used figuratively to speak of death elsewhere in the New Testament. And while humanly speaking, death is certainly final, for the Lord, death does not have the final say. <laughs> 1 Corinthians 15. Notice the crowd's response. It says, and when they heard this, they, they were mourning, crying. And then in verse 53, when Jesus says, stop your weeping, she is not dead. They began to make fun of him. They laughed. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Why? They knew she died. They were there. They saw the last breath. How quickly the world dismisses what God can do in their personal lives, in their community, and in their country. It's easy to fall into that trap, isn't it? No, Lord, X plus Y equals Z. This is the equation. We know how it works. And the Lord's saying, I created math. Just get out of the way, right? I, I can do this. How sure we are as human beings to believe we have a corner on truth and can instruct God on what he needs to do and not to do. 
And in their irony, they mock Jesus and his words. In their irony, the one standing before them could take their life in a minute. You want to know what dead is? Boom. Right? No. If, if they continue on in their belief, the irony is that the one who stands before them, the one who says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, they're going to miss it and, and have eternal judgment and miss out on eternal life. This is the one who stands before you and you laugh? And I, I love it. Jesus doesn't even bother to answer them. Did you notice the text? He just goes right on. And it's like, okay, let's go to the daughter. And did you catch this? Verse 54, Jesus gently, I love that, full of compassion, takes her by the hand. She's unclean! She's dead! This would have made Jesus unclean. I mean, I've heard you got the unclean woman who's touched him, and now you've got this issue. It says, and he says, child, you don't speak to dead people. Get up. Her spirit, there's three things that happens. Her spirits returns, she gets up, life is restored. And then it said, give her something to eat. This is not an hallucination. <laughs> We've not been eating mushrooms. No, 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 no. She has been fully restored. Jesus reaches out and touches her. Isaiah 41, 13. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, do not fear. I will help you. Don't you love it? Who is this Jesus? Who is this one? He's the one who can calm storms. He's the one who has authority over the demonic realm. He's the one who can restore a lady that no one else could fix. And he can give life to a girl that's dead. That's our Jesus. That's our one. Now the text ends and it's a little unique. And people lose sleep over this. He says to the, the parents were astonished. We expect that. But then Jesus says, tell no one. Uh, what? What do you mean tell no one? The ministry that the crowd would wish Jesus would take is not the path that Jesus has. He's going to a cross. They're looking for a king that sets up shop, overthrows Rome. In addition... One has argued the stress on his power will undermine the type of commitment he will ask from people. Following the Lord is not about comfort, but about taking up one's cross and following him. Some scholars also argue there's a, another edge to this, and it's, a bit, it's also kind of a judgment on those who've not responded. They're the ones who laughed. And so, you know, they don't deserve to know all that has transpired in this bedroom. Certainly the parables were used, weren't they? Not only to reveal truth, but to hide it. And the same could be argued for the miracles. Well, you, you have two individuals that are vastly different. You've got a man, you've got a woman. You've got Jairus, you've got this unclean woman. One's named, the other's unnamed. One is prominent, the other's a social outcast. One is wealthy, most likely the other is poor. She spent all she has. One's an insider, she's an outsider. Twelve years of joy with the daughter, twelve years of agony. Publicly requested, privately requested from the Lord. And yet, don't miss the similarities. Both were in great need. I don't care where they come on that stratosphere. Uh, they're both in need. Jairus doesn't bring anything to the table. And certainly not the unclean woman. 
Both acted in desperation. They recognized, I can't do anything to bring healing and restoration. Third, both recognized Jesus was their only hope. And both witnessed firsthand God's sovereignty. There's some principles there in your notes just to highlight. First of all, our faith needs to be driven by the recognition that Jesus is relevant, sufficient, and all-powerful to meet our every need. Sadly, I would argue the danger is repackaging Jesus to fit our cultural narrative rather than presenting a Christ that can change our culture. Since Genesis 3, Satan has tried to undermine the truth and question, do you, do you really know this one? Are you sure that Jesus is all sufficient? And of course the question is, well then why doesn't God answer when I turn to him? I wrote five things. First of all, we're not God. His ways are not ours. Unanswered prayer is an opportunity to grow, depend on him. Unanswered prayer is an opportunity to see the hand of the Lord. Four, afflictions conform us into the image of God. And five, we need to be careful because sometimes our prayers are based out of the wrong intent or an impure motive. But God is God. He didn't have to heal the unclean woman, but he did out of grace. And God has called us to be faithful, to remain, to, to have our faith in this one who is all sufficient. Secondly, there in your notes, the seemingly incoherent events of our lives find their order and rational purpose as we embrace God's plan. Corey Timboom, the the lady from Holland who had hid Jews and was arrested and went to Dachau, lost most of her family in concentration camps. I love this line. She says, when a train goes through a tunnel and it gets dark, you don't throw away the ticket and jump off. You sit still and trust the engineer. <laughs> That's faith. Second Thessalonians, we must always give thanks to God as it is right because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Careful not to view the Lord as some genie, as I mentioned earlier, or rabbit's foot. We are called to trust the Lord even when the circumstances do not make sense. I mean, think about it. Facing an Egyptian prison sentence, Joseph trusted the Lord. Staring at a huge sea with an enemy closing in, Moses trusts the Lord. No prospect of a future child, Abraham trusted the Lord. The recent loss of a husband and living in a foreign land, Ruth trusted the Lord. When faced with a den of lions, Daniel trusted the Lord. Shipwrecked, beaten, and imprisoned, Paul trusted the Lord. There's a quote at the bottom of your notes that's just so powerful. Real satisfaction, Johnny writes, comes not in understanding God's motives, but understanding his character, entrusting his promises, and learning and leaning on him and resting in him as the sovereign who knows what he is doing and does all things well. By the way, that's stated by someone who is paralyzed from the neck down. <laughs> she understands. God is in charge. I don't see the big picture. I rest in him. And third in your notes, living faith, whatever the degree, will accomplish much. 
faith of a mustard seed can move a mountain. Remember that? So Jesus stated, in other words, faith like a mustard seed is a living faith that is nurtured and caused to grow. Faith must be cultivated so that it grows and does not even greater exploits for God. It will bring greater exploits for God. That's the faith that the Lord is asking of us. Perhaps you've never placed your faith in Christ this morning. We've been talking about this unclean woman and Jairus and you, perhaps you even tried God. Well, it didn't work for me. I had these requests and he didn't answer them like he did with Jairus. Remember, he is God. He knows the big picture. And I challenge you today to turn to him. Bask in the presence of the great physician. Let him gently grab you by the hand and wrap his arms around you so that he can restore your soul and give you what this world longs to have and that is peace. Perhaps this morning you say, yeah, I, I've placed my faith in Christ. I've trusted him for my salvation and the forgiveness of my sins. But your faith is waning. The storms of life, they've been great. You say, ah, that unclean woman, I got something on her. The 12 years, try 14, 15. Is there a storm that you're constantly facing that, you, that has prevented you from trusting the Lord? Is it an ongoing battle, whether it's physical, emotional, relational, financial, that has hindered you from turning to God? Now's the day. Look to this one who, who can calm storms, <laughs> who can cast out demons, who can heal an unclean woman and make a 12-year-old girl come back to life. This is our Savior. This is the one who promises peace. We're going to take communion. You should have these little cups with you. If you don't, there's some in the foyer if you would like to grab one. When we talk about faith in this one, it's why? Because this one understands our pain and suffering. He understands the storms. That's why it came. He died on a cross for our sins. He endured physical agony, but far worse was when he endured the sin that he took for us. We're going to spend a few minutes just in prayer, and then we will take this communion. cross <laughs> the compassion shown in that little village at Capernaum to Jairus's daughter and to this anonymous woman unnamed woman when your son healed her is what you've done for us you came you died on a cross for our sin you brought healing and you brought peace and we just thank you oh father as we come to this communion we pray for clean hands and clean hearts lord it's our desire to serve you and father we thank you
In Jesus' name, amen. On that night, Jesus took that cup and the blood that was symbolized in this juice, this cup. And the bread, which you have below, so grab both. Be careful. <laughs> you know, he, he said, these two symbolize my body. The bread and, and the blood, the juice, and the sacrifice that I'm going to make. And we as the church have two beautiful ordinances or points of remembrance. One is communion and the other is baptism. And in both, we're reflecting on the glorious gift that's been given so that we could have peace. And so he took that bread and he, after he'd given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after the supper and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Thank you, O oh Father. Thank you for your son. Thank you for this one who came, took flesh, dwelt among us. The one who can calm storms. The one who can cast out demons and restore life is one we can call our Savior our Lord, and we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name.